don't give it like a the podcast platform of the finalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, what forms of politics are possible through design today? With Mahmoud Keshama. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Mahmoud Keshavas, uh, who is a, a design researcher and uh, a PhD candidate in uh, interaction design in Malmö University in Sweden. Um, and uh, today we're going to, uh, and I should say that he's, uh, he's currently visiting, uh, visiting for a semester at a new school in New York. Um, and today we're going to talk about um, a question that uh, that Mahmoud is uh, is asking in his in his uh, research, which is, which is what forms of politics are possible through designs today, and design understood as much as object, but also as practices and performances. Um, hello, Mahmoud. Hello. Uh, thank you for accepting to talk with me uh, during during your your stay in New York. Um, so maybe just to start to begin the conversation, can I ask you to give us a, a small outline of what your research for your PhD is about? Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you, Leopold, for inviting me to to Archipelago mm. podcast. Um, I should say that actually, I mean, you you, you kind of formulated in this question that I I'm asking in my research. Um, well, my research basically trying to interrogate various forms of possibilities that can be kind of enhanced by design practices and thinking. And by this, of course, there is a kind of positivist approach to this and some sort of optimism that design can contribute to some possibilities of politics. Uh, but there is some sort of negativity because in order to, to, to excavate these possibilities, one needs also to, to, to look at what kind of, kind of, uh, what kind of, what kind of closures happening by design practices today in this terms of preventing from politics to happen uh, or the political. So in a way, I, I'm trying to understand this, but in order to kind of more uh, situate it and contextualize it, I understand politics today partly through the struggles of undocumented migrants and asylum seekers because... Uh, for many reasons, this is not the issue of uh, uh, global north. You actually you have the the, the the major population of undocumented and stateless people in in countries such as Kenya, uh, Pakistan, Iran, uh, used to be Syria. So I mean, this is the issue. This is a very global phenomenon, but it's been of course uh, conducted or kind of regulated with different means and different practices in different locals, uh, different cities, different governments, according to their policies. So, as I said, since I understand kind of party, the way that politics can happen, hopefully, to, to, change, to change the situation, to think of possibilities of living and thinking otherwise, uh, I've been very inspired by struggles of undocumented migrants, that by the, their very presence in a nation states, they kind of... Uh, put in crisis the whole fiction of nationality and citizenship. 
So that's partly the, 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 where the kind of the, I, uh, I bring the issue of politics in it. And then in the other side, you have the design practices that traditionally and historically it's been about smoothing things. It, it's been about comforting things. Design has been always kind of trying to contribute to how things can work better. And this historically often been at the hand of the, the, those at the power. So, I mean, you take, for example, the example of airports. That is, there are lots of design projects about, like, lots of service design, interaction design projects, how to make the experience of airport much nicer and more fluid uh, in the security uh, line, all these things and stuff. And then you have these frequent flyers programs that they can skip the line and go, and then why kind of middle class and lower middle class would stay in queue. All these things are all design practices, being taught as a design uh, practices, being actually done by design firms explicitly. But at the same time, we know that that's not all the story about airports. Airports are very, very political spaces, very, very as political, uh, like very explicitly political uh, uh, constellations that's been designed through means of space and time. So by manipulation of space and time, then you can manipulation the, the flow of people. You can manipulate the, the, uh, the actual time and the space of the poor, for example. And then you have, for example, in the terms of security or war and terror, that you try to anticipate the who are the kind of criminals. You automatically also exclude certain bodies. You automatically exclude some, some certain status, undocumented, or travelers without the right paper, mm -hmm. as I would put it. Uh, so to me, this this is very very uh, quite uh, interesting and also very. Um, challenging kind of space to work with it. So in my work, at the same time that I talk about these kind of issues, I'm trying to, to, to use design as some sort of radical method to stage some experiments within this space that I just kind of define to, to also unfold some issues within the being undocumented or stateless through the means of design because I do believe that social science and, and for example, humanities uh, as academic disciplines, they are not capable by themselves to do to unfold all these practices and subscribe all the things happening to to to, to the narratives already been uh, kind of invented uh, in 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 humanity. So so I think design would contribute in that sense a lot also to migration studies and and, mm -hmm. and uh, social sciences. I see. Well, and we're going to talk a lot about. Uh, migration in this uh, conversation, but maybe right before that, can you can you maybe tell us a little bit a little bit about those experiments you've been uh, you've been doing in those last four years? Um, so the first one, if I'm correct, being uh, 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 an experiment done in, uh, in Tehran, uh, where um, with the experiment offered to uh, a certain amount of women to associate a story to an object, and to maybe uh, talk about um, talk about the way uh, the way they are being uh, they are being oppressed uh, by uh, the patriarchal society through through those objects. Can can you explain to us a little bit what it was about? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean that project it was mainly a stage together with. Um, women activists in, in Tehran 
and particularly the project that's called this quite famous project called one one million signatures against the discriminatory laws uh, against women in Iran um, and that idea was very inspired by by the practices that women activists been doing in Iran for a long time and that's uh, writing workshops so women activists in Iran been doing now for several years I think more more than 10 years uh, doing writing workshops um, with uh, with different kind of uh, women from different classes and different ethnicities in Iran about to in order to write about their experience of violence and perhaps their resistance towards violence uh, but when I was there and working with, with my friends we came to this idea that writing is actually a very hard task to do by itself but um, according to the experience of activists basically many times people can 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 remember their, their experience of violence or perhaps the way the techniques they came up to resist against it through through the very material words and, mm-hmm. and objects because many times it's these material words that makes the possibility of violence to happen. So we need to use material word again to, to speak back to it. Uh, and then, of course, we came with this idea that the workshop would ask participants to, to, to bring an object, a photo, image, some sort of material kind of entities that would remind them of violence or, or, or their experience of resistance against it and then start writing about that object, uh, writing about that particular material thing. And um, this workshops been staged in a couple of cities in, in Iran. And then, uh, we, I mean, the result was amazing, like more than 100 uh, kind of stories we collected. And then I, I put, uh, kind of we put them on a website that would be, that would narrate the, the object. And also it's in both English and Farsi. And then would be also a tool for, for other researchers to think of, kind of think of material culture, to use this kind of, Information for both the studying of material culture, but also sociological studies and all these things, uh, and also, so that was kind of the, the implementation of project. So one part was to doing this workshop and stuff, and uh, the other part was representation, which was very tricky thing to reduce the experience. Of course, to object would be this it's a form of fetishizing. It, it, you're just talking about the fetish kind of fetishized violence. Uh, or, or the whole voice is, is just reduced to some sort of object. The whole, all discussion of subject object division and all this thing. So when it came to to representation, the main question I was concerned is was about the situations. Where do we represent this? Because if you represent this in Iran, it can bring kind of interesting questions, bring up interesting questions and. Can, can open up new ways of discussion. But if you represent this in Sweden or Europe, it doesn't do anything. It just contributes to old narratives of, oh, you've got this patriarchal society of Iran and all this thing. So the question was that, for me, very important is how I do the representation in Sweden. And I do believe that this the representation should be completely different from Iran to Sweden. So this website, for example, I'm saying it was even though we did it in English, it was not aimed at all to be presented in Sweden. So I never kind of wrote about it explicitly, or in my work, I never showed the website. So rather, I worked when I worked with like experience of undocumented women in 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 in, in Sweden. I decided to because that was an 
next step. Yeah, that was the next step, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose maybe just to jump in, I, I suppose the, the problem of representation you were talking about are probably helped by the difference of language as well. Yeah. Like yeah. it's not the same thing to describe this experiment in Farsi within the context of Iran and to yeah. do it in either in Swedish or in English uh, uh, when you're in Europe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, partly that, but also partly uh, the problem of representation. It was like there would be no representation to tell the, the so to speak, the truth or multiple truths happening there. And that's why object was the mediator there, mm -hmm. because the object couldn't fully represent what's going on. So there was lots of actors involved in this. The, the, the narrator, then the object, that would another narrator, then me, an activist, would edit these things and put these things and a stage the workshop. So there were lots of actors involved in such a uh, kind of uh, narration making. And that was the idea of when I did this first experiment in Tehran, when I did the second experiment in, in, in Sweden with undocumented one, which was kind of, this, it was very different because in Tehran it was like more large scale. I didn't have that much contact with, with, with women who were narrators because the workshop was leading by female activists since they could feel much more comfortable to do this. So I uh, never kind of met, I mean, none of the male kind of activists, uh, uh, they were not in the workshops. Uh, but in, in Sweden, I was like more in very close relation with the undocumented woman to uh, three kind of two mostly did the experiments uh, and they were kind of documenting the, the, their their life because the main concern was about that their life is so uh, temporary all the time this temporariness how they can get rid of this temporariness so anyhow at the end it was lots of materials and narration about different types of violence um, also the state violence in Sweden too but then the problem was, how do I, even in Sweden, and it was this, with these women, that they were not, of course, Swedish, because they were undocumented, the problem would be, again, the same. This migrant woman who is, mm. like, uh, oppressed by some male, and he cannot go to, to the, the state who is this peaceful actor who would protect all women, which is not true. Mm. So, so, again, it was the same problem. So, actually, the, the problem representation led me to think about something that I call politics of translation, they should be very situated and in, 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 the, in, in the combination of design and politics, there wouldn't be such a thing as a universal kind of form of translation. It always needs to be situated. And also I add that it always needs to be even resituated, even within one local. So that kind of led to third experiment that was actually the whole idea of representation. So I, I was very inspired by Walter Benjamin's takes on the task of translator and how we tend to always use this idea of good translation that's supposed to make everything meaningful and contribute to the, to the established regimes of meaning makings and all these things. Rather, you would have the bad translation or literal translation that the only concern is with form, not communicating, the, so to speak, the truth. But this would open up to other truths. So, and that's why I use the techniques of abstractions. I, I just picked up, I can again intervene as a mediator. I picked up just only one sentence from all the stories and also abstracted all the images. And I presented them to audiences and asked them to, to make constellation. This is a project about violence against women. And hope that the audiences, they were mostly Swedish, would they had to use their own experience to, const to, to create this. So the project doesn't become, again, another project about Middle, East, Middle Eastern women oppressed by, by patriarchal society. Mm -hmm. I see. Well, there's, um, 
to, to maybe take one object in particular that you've been uh, uh, studying in, in deep details is uh, the object of the passport. So there's, there's those three quotes uh, in particular that I'd like, I'd like to read. Uh, the first one is, with your passport you carry all the socio-political stigmatization of your nationality. Would be would be contained within the within the object, mm. and uh, you also talked about if you lose the pr if you lose your passport and and you say quote your presence your body or any other existential aspect that is inherent to you is not valid anymore yeah once you lose your passport and the last thing is not so much a quote but the, it's the idea that the, the passport absolutely do not belong to the holder of it. Yeah, that's something I was I was yeah. quite interested. So, could you maybe uh, tell us more about this uh, very specific object that the passport is? Yeah, I mean, passport is is very interesting object. I mean, in my research, when I started about undocumentedness and design, I didn't think of the passport because it was such a given, so mm. to speak. Uh, but after a while. I mean, talking to lots of undocumented friends, this idea of paper, it always came up. And it's, I mean, it's even in the language. You have the sans papier, you have paperless, in Swedish, uh, populist law. So sans papier being the undocumented uh, people in, in France. In France, exactly. Yeah. In Sweden, it's the same. It's populist uh, law. It's mm -hmm. like paperless. Uh, in in uh, in Iran, it's like Bishan uh, Asname, meaning meaning without the birth certificate, mm -hmm. even like words that you are not even born, kind of. Yeah. Uh, in and um, in all uh, in in English, it's undocumented. So so the idea of paper become very very kind of a strong, and uh, and in a way, I mean, Drida put it already that the history of politics is the history of papers. So not a, pa uh, a paper history. So, uh, and then in discussion with lots of my undocumented friends, this idea of papers and passport become very strong and different kind of uh, relations to it. So it was not about not having the passport, but different relations to it. We know that, for example, lots of travelers, uh, travelers that try to apply for asylum, they travel with a so to speak forged passport. Or even if they travel with their own passport, they would destroy their passport. Yeah. And that's an and interesting gesture as well. Yeah, it's yeah. Something that also, people don't, don't necessarily always know, which is that. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes you you do lose your passport. Yeah, it's sometimes very strategic. You yeah. can use actually passport as a very strategic means of. Uh, so, I mean, some particular gesture. Uh, many times um, you might be banned from having a passport. It's the case in still many countries and very famous in the U.S. that uh, during Cold War, many people were kind of being sus suspicious of being communists. They were banned from having passport. So either if you have it or you don't have it, you want to have it or you don't want to have it, you destroy it or use a forged one. There is always some relation to it. So it's very, at the same time, tangible artifact that that facilitate or prevent some certain of movements. Uh, um, so in a way, and it's very interesting because when I talk to some of the colleagues, mainly uh, white colleagues, for them, when I talk, I'm writing about passports, people are like, yeah, but... I mean, what's what's special about that? And that kind of came to my mind that, yeah, because to, to take for granted the passport as a given kind of just 
object like many other things is very wide perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go to, to Palestine, you understand how important is the issue of passport. In Iran, it's very important for undocumented people. Passport actually is a very important document for, for, for the poor, so to speak. But now, for example, the frequent flyer, many of them don't need even to carry the passport. They go, they, they scan their retina pattern and just pass through the border. So, so then I came to this idea that actually, no, it's very important. If, if the white perspective thinks passport is such a given, such a like, simple thing, not that much important, it's the border that's important. I thought maybe I should focus on that. So, I mean, in the, in the quotes that you, you, you're reading, yeah, of course, I mean, passport, passport brings lots of aspects. You can have different readings of passport. In my work, for example, I try to f- understand passport first as an object uh, in the sense of high degree and sense with the example of hammer, for example, that the hammer shows itself to you when it fails kind of to do the nail or when it breaks. So then you realize that the thingness of the hammer. And when you, I mean, a passport is like that. You take it for granted until you lose it or then you realize that it happened to many people, they're traveling and they realize like, oh, we don't have enough like time, like this expiration is less than, for example, three months, so I cannot get out of the country. So then the passport become very important even to to privilege population mm-hmm. in that moment. And then you have the political ecology kind of readings of passport. That can be how passport is not only functions within itself as an isolated object, but it's always in function with other entities. It's it's in passport is at work with the, the, the apparatus of databases. It's with the biometric technology and system. It's with the agent border, with the Department of Homeland Security. It's always in speaking with other things, and it, it, it always functions in, in relation to other things. Uh, well, and that, in that, that sense, for example, I can give you the idea of the borderless Europe. Mm-hmm. Huh? The, the whole myth and, and romanticism about the Europe without, without, uh, without passports. Mm. So it's been it's introduced as such a successful policy, even one means for getting Nobel Peace Prize for, for European Union. But as we know, uh, uh, we know that, for example, the, the cleaning of one inv- environment entails the polluting of other environments. Uh, that's what Salotter is talking about in terms of air conditioner. So if we think of this policy as some sort of air conditioner that's supposed to clean huh? clean the, the, the Europe from the problem of borders, that means that we need a thicker border, border around Europe. So you, you produce, while you design a borderless Europe, you have to, there is no way, to design also a Frontex a military kind of institution would guard the borders of Europe. So cleaning the environment of Europe needs the, the pollute, pollution of outside of Europe. So you, you dump actually these things to outside. So then the all population from outside coming, they can be subscribed to the polluted kind of population. And well, I, I suppose not only that, but e- even like if you, if you look at Europe in particular, uh, right now, uh, I don't know how much your uh, non-European uh, listeners are aware of that, but the most consensual forms of racism in Europe are... Uh, not not so much uh, directed towards uh, the the black and Arab population, even though it's uh, very very uh, uh, effective. But it's towards the the Romas, the the, the gypsy population. Yeah. Uh, in, and I and I call that really on purpose uh, uh, um, a consensual racism because that that's 
that we're we're back to the moment where it's completely okay to say the worst atrocities yeah. about about those people. And those people, for most of them, are uh, are um, European. Yeah, they're, they're citizens European. of Europe. But, yes. Uh, and we, we might talk about the, the means of expul- expulsion from a territory a little bit later because that's something I know we, we've been talking about before. But, um, but it's interesting also how there's a, a form of hypocrisy in saying that Schengen, uh, so since uh, 80, 1985, is, creates this, uh, this open space within Europe when actually when, when you do have a problem with it, and we saw it when uh, Sarkozy was president of France and yeah. Berlusconi was president of uh, uh, Prime Minister sorry, of Italy, and how they were trying to renegotiate the terms of Schengen to, to not to have this Roma population on their territory. Uh, uh, so it's really, it's really take what you want and, and don't take what you don't want. Like it's uh, uh, even within this territory, but yeah. obviously Fortress Europe and, and Fortress Western, uh, we could say, is, yeah. is very much... Uh, uh, materialize as well. Right? Yeah, of course. I mean, this is by no means that the attempt to clean the, the Europe, so to speak, to make a clean Europe out of the, the, the other um, as a, some sort of conditioning the air that we're supposed to breathe. Uh, it doesn't mean that, okay, it functions that way. No, there's always would be something. I mean, Roma population, as an example, it's one, and all of them got the European passport. They have EU passport in their pockets. But they are subject to, to a state racism, they are subject to, to individual racism all over Europe. Uh, Police racism? No, pol- well. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't part, know as part of a state, a state racism. But this, yeah. this morning there was a note from the, the sixth the six district in Paris of the police saying that they should uh, immediately evict any any Roma uh, family they would see is just standing like uh, sitting on the on the sidewalk or something so it's, <laughs> it's news like that every day yeah every day it's, I mean la- last year came out in Sweden that police been systematically registered Roma people yeah and even they are Swedish citizens yeah. and they are like even they go to I mean I mean like regular citizens like everyone they've been systematically registering all of them well that's why the passport comes back as well yeah. as the idea of registering yes. monitoring yeah exactly because passport I mean we, we again think oh it's this object that facilitate us for, for traveling going outside the right to live but also the right to return because many passports have this sentence that they ask this so to speak the third state to, to, to protect this holder of this passport on behalf of the other state, and that's explicitly written in British passport, I think even French passport, I don't know exactly, I don't remember. But So we take the passport in that way, but the thing is like partly passport it came to, to, to appear as a form of just registration. So if you have this material entity, it's called database of information that's a store, and you have this mobile body. So if there is a mobile body and a statistic database, there need to be something for mediating this relationship to, to be readable. And what is better than the, the material of paper in the form of a book? Because a book, it can be written and read. So the passport engaged in itself, the practice of reading and writing, we know that historically in medieval Europe, writing on bodies was a very common practice for criminals, like tattooing them mm-hmm. or a scar on their bodies. Uh, well, and to, in the Holocaust as well. Yeah, of course, yeah. Even in, into the Holocaust. Uh, um, I mean, Holocaust was much more systematic based on race and stuff, but in medieval Europe, when, 
it was very much about the criminals and vagabonds and of course the Roma and Jews, the Roma Jews as well, so yeah. Exactly. yeah yeah but uh, so but then of course later in 18th century the, 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 the governors basically need to, to do less visible and kind of less invasive techniques of writings and that would be writing a database for all these people and writing the passport for everyone. And then at the same time for writing, you have the practice of reading. So a whole institutional discourse of reading, how to read this passport and assign this to all those social narratives and all these things. So different practices of reading and writing and different agents for writing and reading came, came kind of to, to exist and particularly within the end of 18th century and, and 19th century, which in parallel to argument of Foucault about, about the, the whole notion of the, the invention of population and regularization. So it was not anymore about disciplining that was like tattooing in, in medieval Europe, but more, more about regulating bodies and regulating of, of bodies that, that can, can move. And it's, it's subject to everyone. It's because before, it's very interesting, the idea of letters of conduct or that is the old kind of generation passports they were subject to two forms of people, either privileged people, like the one that could travel, traders, soldiers, uh, and jurists, and, and, and bishops, and all these people, or the very poor vagabonds, Roma. So it was always subject to these two groups. Mm. The first group had to pay for it because it was a privileged gesture to have a letter of contact. The, the other one, it was more a matter of to see if these people have disease or not, so if they can go to another territory. And that's still today, this, techno, this political technologies of registering, even though it covers everyone to some degree, but also the, the harsh, harsher techniques or experimental techniques targets both the, the very rich privilege and, and, and the very poor. I mean, it's very could be very... Uh, it would be maybe um, uh, strange to think we know that all all these experiments of like retinal pattern scan first was done by frequent flyer programs for people who travel a lot, but also for those from the certain countries that their states are called being like uh, that they are sponsoring terrorism. People from Iran, Iraq, Libya. These techniques been first applied to them, but now it's for everyone, getting it for everyone. So. Uh, I mean, it's it's very complicated. You have this this object as a passport, but then the parallel you have a whole the system of identification and and and, and data machines, so to speak. Uh, so what interests me a lot is not only the mere design of the passport that's done by by the, part, the state departments in different countries. Um, but uh, but also the possibilities, the whole material possibility of passport that can produce different different actions, uh, which we can get to it later. I don't know if you want to get to the idea of forging passports and mm-hmm. stuff. Well, there, there's a question I wanted to ask you yeah. because last time last time we talked we talked about those planes uh, of uh, that uh, uh, the. the the terminology, the administ- the bureaucratic terminologies to reconduct, uh, to reconduct uh, undo- undocumented uh, uh, um, uh, migrants to to their to their place of origin, um, and so once again, I don't know if people quite realize how this happens, but most of the time when it would be like only a few a few um, a few people, then. You, they would be forced into a plane and escorted with a, escorted with a, with a, 
a police officer and uh, I mean a custom police officer uh, and there's actually uh, just as a side note there's a, this incredible manual of, uh, of uh, that, that was uh, given to, to those police officers to how to control the body uh, of, of, uh, of, uh, of a given other body to to prevent this body from screaming or to calm it or in a in a in extremely violent but almost invisible way uh, it's it's uh, it's very interesting uh, uh, um, but so so you have to imagine this population being reconducted uh, in the context of a normal commercial flight with uh, with uh, 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 this idea again of invisibility like you need to, you need to make these things as, mm. as discreet as possible because yep. that uh, uh, we could we could naively say because otherwise people would revolt against it but yeah. but but I, I think the way to put it is also pe people can only accept if they're not being put in front of their in front of the things they are actually accomplished with so, yeah uh, but there is also other other planes that uh, accomplish this mission, which is to which is entire planes, uh, what we call the, the charter charter planes. And I think last time we talked together, you had a very fascinating way to, to describe that. Could you could you maybe tell us about it? Yeah, um, and then after that, I would go back to this idea of invisibility. But sure. the idea, yeah, that I said like people like, uh, for example, in the UK. It's been expressed by uh, by right wing extremes and and, and uh, racist parties that they were complaining. This is a waste of money that we put like one or two person in charter flights, uh, and they want a mass deportation. Meaning like they would put all the people that are supposed to be deported in a flight like 200 whatever and deport together because they want to see the same image to see the image of the the mass kind of migrants arriving by boats to their shore. Now they want to uh, a plane with full of migrants be deported. So this, this image is supposed to speak together. Yeah. And that talks about very much about our regime of sense, of translation, of meaning-making today. Yeah, it's because, spectacular. Yeah, spectacular. Yeah. It, it makes sense more to if you get like 100 people, you deport 100 people. And that's also the follow-up, the way capitalism might work, should work. So, yeah, that was the... The way I, I think about it, that how these two images, spectacular images, supposed to speak to each other for, 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 in this context, we can say the races in Europe and not all the people. Yeah, but uh, in terms of the uh, invisibility, I mean, of course, I mean the way you put it, yeah, to to avoid uh, to avoid the, the the revolt or protest from the public, but also uh, the idea that. In Europe, we, you should not see the violence as you're supposed to see it on the TV happening yeah. in other parts of the world. It's part of the social contract that you exactly. should not be put in front of, of the violence of yeah. the system you're being, you're being part of. And uh, not only the system, any sort of other violence. You try to avoid any sort of violence being, being kind of transmitted from inside Europe. And that's why... like many times when all these riots happen like in Europe, all the questions like why what's their problem, you know, all these things because the violence is always supposed to happen there somewhere else huh? uh, in Africa, in Middle East in, in, in these countries, not, not here uh, and in that sense it's very, very interesting to think about how, for example the, uh, the drone bodies that came to the shore in Canary Islands uh, a few years ago, it created such a 
uh, such a fear among mm. European people. Or in Lampedusa, in Italy. In Lampedusa, and also in Canary Islands. Mm. Uh, that was like tourists sitting there having their, their sunbath and all these bodies that's by the shore. Europe doesn't want, a Europe that won Nobel Peace Prize uh, doesn't want to see uh, this corpse around uh, its borders. So it's better to externalize the border, for example, in one case. Now thinking how we can stop people coming, not for asylum, but also because we don't want to see dead bodies in the border. It's mm-hmm. not good for us. Uh, so... On a side note, people coming from countries that were previously colonized by those same countries. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so it's very, very complex, uh, complex matters. This idea of invisibility, and that's why, of course, you know, detention centers is usually off, off the sites outside the cities. They don't look mm-hmm. like prison. Uh, that's part of like to keep them keep them invisible even when it's time to deportation that is very public matter to try to keep them invisible and all these things uh, even the invisibility is not only on the body but invisibility on the vehicles for example is the on the vehicles mm-hmm. like the, the, the transportation uh, devices so to speak for example in case of Sweden the buses that take them the detainees from the detention center to the airport for deportations been subject to lots of uh, protests by 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 activists sending email uh, that um, we should stop doing this and all this stuff and many companies stop collaborating with migration board in Sweden but many of them that decide to continue because of the good money perhaps uh, they covered their logo so the the uh, they cover their logo in order to not be visible as well for, mm-hmm. for, for the people. And because they cover their logo, uh, the activists call them white buses. And this is ironically in the history of Sweden because uh, both, I mean, the color of white that they use, they call them white buses, but also you have in the history of Sweden uh, a celebrated figure uh, that is uh, Raoul Wallenberg, who, who, who saved the lives of lots of Jews by actually confiscating and forging papers for them to come to Sweden, and they all of most of them they arrived by white buses to Sweden. Uh, so they, the act is kind of playing with this uh, paradox of history that some certain white buses were for were for welcoming, and some other white buses is for deporting and 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 rejection, so to speak. So some for hospitality and some for hostility, so to mm-hmm. speak. Could you could you tell us about the the border framing projects that you've been working on? Yeah, sure. Uh, border framing project was part of this idea of uh, how basically borders is not only practiced by, by its shores and like very physical border, but it's, it's very porous and it's, it's, it's fluctuated uh, and it's everywhere. Uh, and that's very, very visible in the case of, so to speak, capturing or hunting undocumented people. Uh, uh, and for example that it became more explicit in Sweden two years ago with a project called REVA that was the abbreviation for now I don't remember but uh, so to speak it was a unified project or integrated project that police would search for undocumented people meaning doing racial profiling because otherwise how are you going to find all the one who don't, who doesn't look uh, Swedish going to be subject yeah. to this profiling and then see if they have paper or not that project uh, created lots of anger and protests, and now police doing it more invisible 
they used to do it like very explicit and visible, going to subways, like doing racial profiling, but now they do it more invisible as we discussed. Uh, uh, and that project is border framing it you came at the same time uh, so explicitly or practically the project it was about uh, performing or positioning those spaces in for example city of Malmo or Stockholm that's police been doing some sort of racial profiling or police been using other techniques or ambushing or other techniques to, to, to actually arrest undocumented people and this information came through some SMS system network that we had activists together sending SMS to each other that police is here checking IDs so we would uh, distribute this message to undocumented friends that we have so they wouldn't go to that space so by that kind of police managed to, to keep undocumented people out kind of inside, you know, to domesticate them, to not be in the society, to they don't work and all these things, create kind of fear among them, but at the same time practically arrest lots of them. Uh, so the project it was to to basically by a simple tape frame that space or time and invite people to look at the look at the border, not necessarily look at the bodies or that they hunted by the border because the bodies are not anymore, but by look at the border. So basically the idea was not, because usually we think of border as a frame, border frames people, uh, borders decides who is in, who is out, all, all these binaries, but our idea was like to frame the border itself. So that was the project and it's... Uh, so you put, you put some, like, some police-like uh, yeah, tape, exactly. Uh, to the places where where this has been so the, so the subject arrest to arrest or yeah exactly or arrest and racial profiling and checking so very similar to police uh, and actually we had this ironic slogan that uh, border framing border framing more than the police like do the framing because police does some sort of framing but police frame the bodies we do the framing but we frame the borders mm. itself uh, and uh, and how, for example, a simple bench can be turned to a place of arrest easily. And that needs some sort of orientation towards it. And, so, uh, and then also we, we, we have these kits that people ask us, we send them the kit. It's, it's some sort of forensic kind of uh, kits. It has like a border log, uh, one of these like police kind of tape uh, band that put at the crime scene. Mm. And we ask people to, to and we give them also a maps and that's uh, about those places police been doing racial profiling so they can go to the uh, to that place frame it by this and also try to unfold other histories of places so for example they can uh, start by the bodies being subject to racial profiling as the main crime happened by the police and then unfold other stories around the same space for example you might end up saying like here a Roma kind of family used to live here but they've been exploded so how actually border it's both there but also it distributed to, to many other places around it so the whole uh, project it's some sort of forensic approach to the, to the idea of, 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 of the borders and, uh, and the borders are both produced at a very specific place but also they are circulating in, in, uh, in different spaces and that's the whole idea of also capitalism you know? mm -hmm. Well, the, the last thing I would like to ask you about in this conversation is about this uh, uh, asylum march uh, that happened in 2013 between uh, Malmö and Stockholm so 
uh, for those who don't know much the geography of Sweden it's a relatively significant yeah. uh, march <laughs> uh, that was made with a, a series of workshops and uh, and um, around uh, around several bodies of asylum seekers could you maybe tell us uh, how this happened? How, how long did it last to start? Uh, 34 days. 34 days, okay, to, yeah. to cover the distance between Malmö and Stockholm. That's around 730, 740 kilometers. Yeah, so a thousand miles. Uh, no, I'm sorry, 500 miles. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm not uh, yeah. familiar with <laughs> this uh, measurement system. But, uh, yeah, the march, mm, I mean, it came out from... Um, um, this uh, a disappointment, um, sort, some sort of anger that many asylum seekers and undocumented migrants been been experiencing in Europe in terms of criminalization of them by detaining them, putting them in camp, deportation of them, treating them like criminal because basically they ask for asylum. So this this disappointment or anger made one of these asylum seekers in Sweden that he wanted to go and tell his stories. To, to different people because he believed if he would tell his stories to, to individuals, he would be able to mobilize public opinion. Uh, and he approached the activist group that I'm part of it and the group accepted and other also NGO kind of got involved. So it became a very big project working from south of Sweden to the middle of the capital, Stockholm, uh, meeting different people on the way. Many political parties tried to join but uh, People were hesitated about that because the idea was just to, to take the power back to the people, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Because politicians are the ones created such a situation. What are you going to talk about? Uh, with them? They know better than you how is the situation about, to some degree. Um, and then, uh, So the idea with the march, we were part of this uh, autonomous migrant movement been going on in Europe for, for, for a long time, from the, the occupation of San Bernard Church in 1986 uh, uh, 1983 maybe 1993 or yeah, 1991 <laughs> the Munich uh, kind of we will rise the strike so there are lots of migrant autonomous movement and that's asylum seekers themselves uh, they, they take the power and, and, and uh, stage protests and demonstrations because so far it's been mostly been uh, they've been represented by so, so to speak the white activists mm-hmm. and it's nothing wrong with that of course but also they were absent at the same time yeah, from this space one has to understand as well I suppose that uh, uh, Having a migra- migra- uh, undocumented uh, 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 worker strikes or or migrant uh, migrants movements or uh, asylum seekers uh, speaking up, all those things is, are coming from extremely vulnerable uh, uh, political positions. So like it's it, it it's that gives them even more strength, I suppose. But it's it's also extremely. Uh, uh, bold I would say to, to, to take such a stance when when being in such a uh, precarious uh, 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 position towards towards a, a non-citizenship exactly because even practically when we talk about the space and time it can also speak back to the the, the old idea of, of um, uh, 
and domestication of workers or, or, or women and how, for example, how this type of policing of society would domesticate easily by undocumented migrant because if undocumented migrant who had to who have to make money, I mean they have to work maybe 14 hours to to make the basic kind of uh, income for just having a shelter or, or having something to eat. That means they do wouldn't have enough time or a space to go out and and demand for for their rights. So it needs. I mean, it's highly political act. It's it's much more. Uh, extremely political and extremely I think uh, important the things that undocumented migrants do in their struggle to actually get out of this this space I mean we know that in, in the US the, the undocumented the dreamers campaign they talk about actually coming out uh, it's their slogan that you should come out as undocumented to not be prescribed to what the police wants to be only working all the time and not ask for for your rights so to speak so in that context the asylum march or asyl then was based on that uh, and also to some degree that march also was directed a lot on the idea of uh, unaccompanied minors because many of undocumented migrants and students today are unaccompanied minors actually the 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 children under 18 that they, they come they don't have any parents or uh, they, they, they come without their parents and, and that's it's a very big challenge the way the governments kind of use medical experiments over their bodies in order to see if they're selling, telling the truth or not doing x-ray and measurements of hands and teeth and um, and it's very interesting that always government propose them, okay, you are, for example, government telling them or the migration office telling them, you are 20. If you say you are not 20, you can optionally do like an X-ray. So the X-ray is an option. And if you don't do it, that means that you don't collaborate with the, with the official, so they're going to tell you you are 20. So it's a very complex way of um, uh, handling the issue, a very complex way of treating children as well. Uh, so stuff didn't actually happen in that case and of course since like many other march it, it brought with itself different ideas and practices and different doings such as like giving a speech music screening movies making movies but also workshops uh, mm. that uh, I was part of it and that, that might be my question here to maybe uh, uh, bring brings a loop to the conversation in uh, going back to this idea of objects that we started mm-hmm. with, uh, like you, you have a particular uh, attachment to the idea of craft. So could, you, could we maybe conclude this conversation with this, uh, with this idea? Uh, if I have any particular... Well, or because of this workshop of, yeah. of uh, a certain yeah. the craft, craft as a, as a very uh, uh, craftsmanship, as a very uh, 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 meaningful uh, political aspect to it. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's maybe before that I have to somehow define what I would kind of argue as design. To me, design, even though now today is very disciplinized with different categories, at the end of the day, is some sort of meaning-making activity that happens through manipulation of of materials and senses. Mm-hmm. So that would be the. the the, the definition I would give but this also entitled in, in craft 
of course, I mean, the, the big distinction between craft and design would be the capitalist or industrial society, that craftsmanship still it, it lies with this one-to-one relationship, and industrial designer, for example, would be this one-to-the-mass kind of uh, consumer or mass audiences or whatever. Here, I'm not interested in this division at all. What interests me a lot is it's the role of making as a, as a radical method. This doesn't mean that making by itself is radical, but it's, it's the way you would orient yourself towards making or the, body, the way bodies would be oriented towards the makings that would make it radical. So, and that, for example, would be the case of Roma practices of crafting, uh, that at the same time uh, it's historically been kind of put out of the whole craft discourse because it doesn't belong to the nation, because craft is such a nationalistic and heritage kind of approach idea to the making of a nation and uh, Kras always talks about the nature that is, has its roots in it so that the population are mobile they wouldn't be in, attached to any sort of nature so, and they would do a craft that has no so to speak roots uh, but the pro- things that these crafters they have uh, actually they have uh, feet huh? they have foods not, not roots that's like the slogan also people use a lot and and the fact of moving among territories would produce another sort of craft that's been historically a threat both to the, the, the market of the national crafters uh, but, uh, economically but also conceptually and in terms of pattern and the shape. And, uh, and for example, the idea of crafting workshops in Asile Staffetem was like that because this idea of of the people who they don't belong to, to Swedish territory and they would do craft in a completely different way in terms of pattern and economic wise, what would they produce? But also use this space as a form of discussion. So going back to the idea of making or crafting, what interests me a lot is this possibility of this intervention, momentary. Uh, that, for example, in my work I was trying to do as a design researcher when I use design experiments is many times this momentary intervention through material or crafting or making. And, and that's both inspired a lot with the idea of forging passports. Uh, what interests me in forging the passport or forging the bodies in relation to passport, because when the passports become hard to forge, basically many times the solution is to forge the bodies that would be readable compared to the passport. So if I get for example, a passport um, that looks like a bit like me, but uh, the guy's got a blue eyes, so I would put some blue contact kind of lens into my, my eyes, so I would start forging the body to be readable to them. So uh, what interests me in the act of forger, that's some sort of crafting, either towards the body or the passport. I mean, the passport is a body, anyway, I, I argue in my word. Uh, it... It, that proposed a momentary disconnection in the whole flow of regime of meaning making and databases and stuff. And in a, it's a critical practice in a very interesting way beyond the fetishist and kind of romantic use of critique that is very explicit, for example, in something called critical design. It's a very f- safe form of doing critique. It's, it's the elite Westerns. They had some Im- embedded some sort of criticism against technology in some kind of artifact, and they put it in exhibition, and that's it. This is a very safe way of doing critique. While to me, criticality, it, it always has its danger. Criticality, it's not safe necessarily. Criticality, it creates some sort of threat 
towards the establishment that, that prove the whole meaning before the critique comes. So critique in itself, it always targets the, the, uh, the safe zone, so to speak. And in that sense, forger, the one that forges the passport, does such a thing. Because he or she basically reveals the, the, the paradox in the, in, 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 in the notion of birth and citizenship that these they are not necessarily supposed to be readable to each other. So if me as an Iranian can, can walk or pass the border with an with Italian passport, that means that this, I mean, that basically shows the whole paradox in, in, in the notion of citizenship and the way your body looks. Huh? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the, the forger of the passport or the maker of the, the fake passport tells us something else, that in criticality, there is a, a whole level of exploitation too. So criticality is not this, uh, so to speak, celebrated, nice, uh, very human things to do because it operates within its own power relationship. It, it tries to operate outside the, 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 the uh, how do you say, the very established and acceptable power relationship. It can create its own kind of exploitation, and that's very case with lots of migration brokers or smugglers that they can exploit people because of their ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation in order to give them the passport that they want. So to me, the making in itself, it's not necessarily or crafting in itself, I mean, autonomous, critical way of doing things, but brings with itself some possibilities of doing that would kind of demystifies lots of fictions that we, we live with it, the whole fiction of nation states and, and democracy, so to speak. So it is in this regard that I'm interested in the making and, and uh, also thinking of forger as a kind of a critical, uh, critical major. So to speak. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a, that's a very powerful way to, to finish this conversation and thinking of their of what really troubles us maybe maybe actually the the real criticality uh, I was watching there uh, 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 the terrorist advocate uh, before coming here Jacques Vergès mm-hmm. so I think that I, I, that resonates to me quite a bit uh, uh, Mahmoud thank you so much for taking thank the you. time to talk to me and uh, and the listeners uh, thank you thank you so much.